Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. My guest today with his band Big Bad Voodoo Daddy has sold over 4 million records worldwide. Big Bad Voodoo Daddy has performed for three of the last four U.S. presidents, including saxophonist and music fan Bill Clinton. In 1999, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy's hometown of Ventura, California, recognized the band as a local musical treasure and presented its members with the key to the city. Pretty cool. Big Bad Voodoo Daddy has performed more than 2,600 shows over 22 years with a streak of 260 consecutive sold-out concerts and won the 1998 Polestar Awards Club Tour of the Year Award. Big Bad Voodoo Daddy has performed with Stevie Wonder and Gloria Estevan at the Super Bowl 33 halftime show in Miami. Big Bad Voodoo Daddy has had the honor of performing with 36 symphony orchestras across the U.S., such as the L.A. Philharmonic and National Symphony Orchestra at the Kennedy Center. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce the talented singer, songwriter, band leader, and producer, Mr. Scotty Morris. Scotty. Guy. How you doing, buddy? I'm well, yourself? I'm doing good, man. I'm super stoked to have you on the show. And uh, so thanks for being here, man. It's my pleasure, man. Thanks. It's been a long time. You need you and I need to catch up way, way, way sooner than this. Right? <laughs> we go We go way back. And really uh, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask was, um, you know, how did, how did we meet? You remember? Lion Ice. Yeah. Lion, Lion Ice. Yeah. Was it Lion Ice? Yeah. I, I think so. Yeah. I think it was the very early inception of that because I was still, um, I was still on the, um, probably the underground a little bit yeah. as far as like Vin- Ventura because I was, I'm, I'm from Oxnard, California, which yeah. is like between Malibu and Santa Barbara and Ventura, you know, more South. And we, we were more of a punk rock based community where I, where I'm, what I was from, where I came up from. And so I was the punk bands and whatnot. But then when I saw, when I saw you guys early on, I was, I was definitely attracted to what I was hearing for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember, um, you know, uh, doing shows with you guys and, um, when you guys were first starting out and all that, which I want to talk about, but I remember, uh-huh. I remember one time, um, I think we were playing racquetball, man, at the Y in Ventura and, and, uh, Scott dude was there and, yeah, for uh, sure. and, uh, James and, um, and then I think we all went, we, we all went fishing one time up at, uh, Matilha. Do you remember that? Man, it's that, that period is really cloudy for me. I, mean, <laughs> I remember, I remember, I mean, honestly, at that point, what you're, that point that you're talking about when James and I were playing racquetball at the, at the Y, yeah. the, um, I was, I was booking, I was managing, I was writing and yeah. I was a new father all at once. Dude, gnarly. And, and we were playing, you know, at that point we were playing, I mean, we were playing five nights a week and we were playing everywhere. We were playing all over. And I mean, everywhere. I just mean from you know, San Francisco to San Diego. And it was just, it just was like a, it was just like a rolling rock. I'm telling you, it was, it was really pretty crazy. So my memory of, of detail stuff 
You know, if you said something, <laughs> if you said something, it would probably jar my memory on it. And For I'd sure. Be like, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, when did you get into music? When you were a little kid? Uh, yeah, I, there was never, there's never a moment that I can remember where I wasn't doing something. My grandmother had an old piano at her house and we would go visit my grandma all the time. And I, all I wanted to do was to play that piano. And then I had older cousins who were like rock musicians. And then when we would all have family events, they would jump on the, uh, they would jump on that piano and, and, and basically showed me what the piano did. Cause at the time, you know, no one, no one in my family played. So for me, the first thing was, was, you know, like, three years old piano. And then I was started writing my own songs pretty much shortly after that. Once I realized like when I put two and two together. So it's been, it's the only thing I've really, that's been super consistent with me ever since I was really, really, really little. Were you writing songs when you were a little kid on the piano? Mm -hmm. I was writing songs on everything. Anything I can get my hands on, I would write a song. That is so cool. Uh, that's very similar to me too. I was uh, totally on the piano, writing songs, making up songs. My, did you take lessons early on, or are you self-taught? I, you know, I took lessons, and uh, I tell I tell this story. Um, I've told this story before. You know, my my piano. I was like, I don't know, seven seven years old or something like that. But my piano teacher was really hot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and so I wanted to make sure all my lessons were perfect. You know. And, That's great, man. What yeah. a motivation. Yeah. And she, she's the one who got me into writing music. And you know, it was really, you remember Toes Tavern, you know, up in Santa Barbara? Absolutely. Uh, you, you guys probably played there. And, you know, she later on in life, you know, I was playing um, with uh, Lion Eyes up there and she came to one of the shows and I got to tell her that story, you know, and it was, you know, came around full circle. It was really cool. That One of the reasons I was up there playing was because of her, you know. And Yeah, absolutely. It, it was really cool. What about the music scene, man, in Ventura in the 90s? You know, what was up with that? There was a lot of good music, man. I mean, all I can say about that is, is, and I, I think that, I don't know, because you, you guys were more, you were so, you were already really established when I came, because I graduated music school in 88, 80, no, 89. And so I was, I was pretty much punk rock. You know, my, I my, where I was, I was making records. I was making records with Ill Repute or Doctor No and and False Confession, and 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 that kept me really busy. And then and then False Confession, the punk rock band I was in. You know, we would tour, we would play, and and I was really busy. And then turning into another band, and then I we we played. I was in a band called The Rain, and The Rain played. We opened in eighty five or eighty six at Xenon West. <laughs> nice. I, yeah, re I remember that, opened, actually. Yeah, and we, yeah, we opened up for Jane in one week. Camper Band Beethoven, Fishbone, and Jane's Addiction all played at Xenon West. And we opened for Jane's. And we, I remember we played, and we were starting to get really popular. The band The Rain was starting to get really popular in Ventura. And amongst like the, the punk kids that were kind of, because we were kind of more of like a pure cult kind of a, you know, damned kind of thing like that. And, and then, and this, and then I remember we opened for Jane's and when we opened for Jane's, I, uh, I realized that there was nothing I was doing in Ventura County that, that at that point it was going to get me wh where I wanted to go. So I basically bailed to New York at that point. And I, I went to New York after I graduated from high school and sort of bounced around anywhere I could and anytime I could get there. And, and then I realized 
like New Orleans also had like this crazy music scene that I needed to be involved in. So I would save my money and just go to either one of these places and not knowing anybody, I would just emerge myself and just see what happened. It was almost like a, it was almost like a social experiment. Like just what would happen? Like what's going to happen? You know, I'm going to be broke. I'm going to be poor and broke and, and useless in Oxnard. I can be poor and broke and useless in New York and New Orleans just <laughs> as equal, you know? Right. And so that's kind of how it, it started for me. I remember um, hearing about the rain and I think um, uh, you told me a story a long time ago that you had opened up for Jane's addiction at, um, mm-hmm. at Xenon West. And you, you told me a story about Jane's addiction. I believe do you, do you remember that? Like what, what he was doing on stage and was it? I, re- I, I just remember Perry. He was, I remember being backstage and I remember talking to him because I had seen them a couple times, you know, uh-huh. I had seen them. I went and saw them play in places and, and, and you could just tell the difference, you know, like I would go see these bands and you could tell the difference when, when a band was, was putting what they were doing on the line, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, I, I, know, I know bands that go out there and they play and then there's a really, you know, there's somebody in the band is, is um, magnifying the star quality. And so people like go to that and then the band becomes popular. They don't become famous, but they become popular. But yeah. when a band gets on stage and there's something's going on, that was the music. That was the thing that I was attracted to. Like in music, I feel like if I tracked my music back to what made me want to play music, like, you know, when I got started getting older and started realizing that, you know, music could be a, a, a business or a life or whatever. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of different like avenues that lead to those things. But seeing those bands like Black Flag, like I remember going and seeing Black Flag and, and Jane's Addiction and Perry would get out there with, to, to go back to the story, Perry would mm-hmm. get out there and he would, he would put it all on the line. Like I watched <laughs> him put it all on the line and I just, and all the guys in the band were putting it all on the line. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, that's, that's what I have to do. I have to meet, I have to meet guys. I have to put something together where every single time we get on stage, we put it all on the line, no matter what that line is. It could be a, a, a happy line. It could mm-hmm. be a dark line. It could be a, a, a white line, a black line, a red line, a yellow line. It doesn't matter. I just want to, I want to give it my all, you know, I want it to everyone to give it their all. I think too, in the, in the, in the early, you know, late, late eighties, early nineties, you know, there, that musical vibe that was going on, um, you know, all over the place really. But, you know, just in our hometown of Ventura, you know, you could go, you could go anywhere at any time and see live music, not only live music, but original music. And I thought that that was cool. Wasn't it? It was, it was amazing. And, And the thing that was crazy too about it was the bands that were here, you know, I guess to get back to your question too about the Ventura scene, I mean, I mean, eye rails, yeah, crashing, crashing planes, yeah, Durango ninety, Durango ninety five, yeah. the Tan. I know they were Santa Barbara, but still, the Tan, yeah. um, uh, the Mudheads, my the God, Mudheads, the mud oh, yeah, right, dude, the Mudheads, I, the Mudheads are the band that changed me the most, I would say, because we were. Well, I was, I had the trio, Big Bad Dude Daddy was a trio right after I graduated from, from um, music school, from MI. And I um, came back to Ventura to play with Frank Barajas in Durango 95. Right. He hired me to be the guitar player. So I was, I was rehearsing 
in trying to write these songs, I had written all these songs and I was trying to sort of do something with, with the sound in my head. And I met Kurt Sodegar and our drummer now, I met him. And so we're talking like 80, 89, 90. And the Mudheads were, would rehearse next to us. Yeah. And me and Kurt would be working and working and working on this, the sound that I was hearing in my head. And, and it was just, you know, we were like, it, it was the, you know, the hard period when you're in the early stages of something yeah. and you're not quite there. And, but the Mudheads, man, they would be practicing in the room next to us and we would just stop and we would just listen. Yeah. And there was some serious magic going on in that room, man. I'm telling you, there was, and I just like, God, there's another one of those moments where I'm like, I want to be, I want that kind of thing happening, man. I want that kind of thing happening, you know, where you could just hear a band like you know, at, at the high, at the highest of their power. And man, that was one of those bands that was just, you know, and then there was the, the big three. I used to call them the big three in Ventura. And once that things, the smoke settled and I could kind of figure out, <laughs> you know, what was what. And the, the big three, who do you think the big three was? Um, Raging Arb was one. One. Um, well, you guys, for sure. And nope, this is pre-us. This pre-us? is pre-us. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe Lion Eyes was in there in that mix. 100% Lion Eyes. And, uh, God, I don't know. Maybe uh, something Spencer for... Spencer the Gardener. Spencer the Gardener, yes. I mean, that was a toss-up there for sure, yeah. I yeah, had... Spencer the Gardener, man. It was like, it was Lion Eyes. Well, Rage and Arb was the, they were the, you know, because they come from the punk rock scene, so I knew them the best. Yeah. But it was Rage and Arb, you guys, and Spencer. And, and every time I would go see you guys, those, any one of those three bands, I'm, I was all, it was always a, a, a case and study for me. I'm like, what is, make, <laughs> what is making these guys so wildly popular? Like, what is, what is this, you know? Right, right. What do you think it was? I mean, there was a, there was a, um, well, with you guys, you guys, I think Lion Eyes was just a really good band. Thanks. I think that was just a really good band with really, really good catchy songs. And I thought Bobby was pretty, he was pretty, you and Bobby as a, as a, a tag team of, of like, you know, just, you just, I mean, you gave people something to look at, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, fun. you really gave somebody to look at, say, the people, they really do, really do listen to people. Uh, people listen to music with their eyes, man. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of that. And so when, when that, and when that's happening along with really good music, like you had really, really good musicians. Yes, absolutely. And great songs and really great songs. And I thought Spencer had great songs too. And then Spencer was, you know, he was, it was such an enigmatic band, yeah. his band. And then Rage and R was just, Rage and R is, is like the Rolling Stones. It was just, there was just the crash and burn, man. It was, yeah. it was you know, it was like a, it was just amazing. I don't know. It was a really interesting time, but yeah, all three of you guys were, you couldn't be any three different bands either. Like, yeah, you couldn't be any different. Oh man. It was such a great time. I mean, and you could go and watch those bands and seriously like support those bands um, and have a good time. You know, if we weren't playing, I'd be like, I'd be there. I'd be at Raging Arbor. I'd be at Spencer the Gardener. Or I'd go to see you guys or whoever it was yeah. in full support, you know, like, these guys are freaking badass, you know? It was just a blast. You man. know, guy, it's funny because it, it's dawning on me right now, and I'm going to just say it, but, but isn't it kind of funny that, I mean, you guys, you guys, those three bands, they were the kings of Ventura. Like, that was the king of the Ventura scene. This Ventura scene was really good, really good. Yes. And the, those three bands were the kings of it. And then Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, when we came around and I finally could get it together, if you think about it, I think Big Bad Voodoo Daddy is kind of, 
a, a mashup of all three of those bands. Right. I, mean, I really do because huh. I heard your horn section and I was like, well, these guys are playing arrangements. They're not playing, they're not just playing unison lines like Spencer the Gardener. Yeah. And you guys are playing a real arrangements yes. and, and, and whatnot. And so that it is like a lot of that. And then the, the roots of, of Rage and Arb is in there with us. And then Spencer's catchy songs were uh-huh. in there with us. I don't know. I think it was, we were a really good, I think we were a hybrid of all three of you guys. Interesting. Very interesting. That's really cool. Huh? Yeah. That's something to, uh, to think about for sure. Oh my gosh. Well, um, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy got started by you listening to all these different bands and everything, but were you guys like, did you get together with Kurt and start writing songs and then you started adding musicians and, and it just kind of grew from there. And the other question I have is, you know, people talk about, you know, manifesting things. And for me, you know, with Lion Eyes, a lot of that stuff that was happening, I manifested, you know, like playing, playing in a, in a garage to playing parties, to playing, uh, big clubs, to playing, uh, bigger stages and stuff like that, you know, imagining all that and just putting that in my mind that that's what we were going to do. Did you, did that happen for you from like the very beginning? Yeah, that's, that's, that you, you, that's me, um, since uh, my earliest memories. I mean, yeah, I, I, I manifest everything. I, I think through everything. Yeah. I, I, that's the, my, I think that's the biggest thing. And, and to go back to the early days is yes, that's exactly what happened. I, I had written all this music, all the big bad dude at music. I'd written a ton of, of stuff and I knew what I wanted it to sound like. I mean, it was more like, I really wanted big bad daddy to be like almost like a Tom and Jerry cartoon, you know, like that crazy Scott Bradley music. That's just, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it was just, it's a, such wild music. If you listen to it and how it's scoring this insanely violent, wild situation. And yeah. when we came up, Nirvana was the number one band on planet earth. Mm-hmm. And I thought to me, I thought the most punk rock thing that, that we could do that I could do is do a swing band. Cause there was nothing like that. Nothing remotely like that at yeah. the time. You know, this is the, the, this is the dawn of 19 of the new, of the new decade, 1990 when grunge was the thing. And, and so I, I wanted to be as you know, as unique and as original as I could get. And, and that was really the, the onslaught of me and Kurt trying to do this thing. And, and that's really what it was. And the whole time we were doing this, um, I was manifesting in my, in my mind, a plan to try and bring this thing to, you know, it, incrementally you, you make steps towards things. So I incrementally wanted to go play Charlie's. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to then headline Charlie's and then I wanted yeah. to play toast tavern. I wanted to play state may I wanted, I mean, I, I manifested these things and just kept going and going and going. And thankfully, you know, there was a, there were enough places that could, we could play that, that would then sort of get me to, I don't know, um, these next little goals, I guess they would be, you know? So yeah, a hundred percent manifesting ideas. I, I still do it to this day. I'm constantly, yeah. I've got lists and lists and lists of things that I, I write down all the time and I, I look at them daily and I, I try and get, you know, half of a list done just so I, I'm moving towards the things that I want to get towards. When did you realize that you were onto something? Like, like when was the first time like you saw like, 
you know, like a line around the building, you know, for to see one of your shows or when did you realize that like, oh my God, this is like turning into a phenomenon. Like these, all these people are coming to see us. And, you know, this is before internet stuff, Matt. You Way know, before internet. Yeah. yeah. And so this is like word of mouth. This is like grassroots marketing. This is, you know, how it was done in the old days. And people, yeah. people were coming to see real, to see music and not just see it on the internet, but are actually coming to shows. But what was it like when you first realized, you know, things were starting to happen for you guys? It, it I think it was, it was, I, I remember it was, I think it was probably like 94 and it was after we released our record, our first record, the independent record. Mm-hmm. And the, our first independent record wasn't intended to be a record. It was intended to be a demo to try to get, to try to get gigs. And, and it was, we, we had won the battle of the bands uh, at uh, club soda. Oh, you're right on. The, the price was, and it was against the Scott Daddies and everybody else. Uh-huh. And, and, and we won and we weren't supposed to because you know, the, I mean, the Scott Addies were the much more popular band at that moment. But when we came in, we came in and we came hard, and and it, it was it just was starting to happen. And we won, we won the two thousand bucks. So oh, we got we got two thousand bucks for this win, and we took the money, found a studio in Santa Barbara, found a guy to can engineer it and record it. So we made this we made this demo, but the demo was coming out much better than I had anticipated. I just liked the vibe of it. So we threw together a few extra songs and, and then those songs, we never even played them live. We just kind of did them in the studio and, and, and then we just put this record out. And I think it was shortly after that, 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 and that was September of 94. And it was just, it just seemed like every place we played along the coast, all the way up to San Francisco to San Diego, after the record had come out and I just called record com- record stores. I would just call record stores and say, listen, um, can I do consignment? And yeah. they said, yes. And I would take a day and I would drive all the way out to San Francisco and I would hit every single record store, mom, pa record store all the way up the coast. And then I would come back that night and I would do the same thing all the way up to San Diego and do the same thing in a day. So it usually take me two, three days to get all the records in the record stores. And then, it was usually be about every two weeks I'd have to go do it again because the yeah. records would just, they were selling. And then we would sell between 30 and 60, you know, two boxes, one box to two box every single night we were playing. Yeah. And I, I would say that it was probably right around, I think it was like right around Thanksgiving of that year of like 94 when I realized like something was happening because the people were, people were really showing up in droves and the record was buying a lot. I mean, people were buying that record a lot, the CD. Mm-hmm. And so it just, that's when I sort of thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to push all my chips. I'm going to push all my chips in and go for it. And that was, it was in November, November of 94. And that was it. And I, I've, I've, I never looked back since that point. You know, people don't realize the the amount of work that goes into a band, you know, they, they have no idea. They just see the band up there on the stage and having a good time. But mm-hmm. you know, the grassroots marketing, the grassroots, uh, getting the band going, the, the, the days in the van traveling, 
um, to the next show, you know, and just, you know, building on that, you know, it's building for years, building a business basically. Yeah. For years and years and years. It's like you, you have to do that for years, even though there was, even though we could sell out any club from, you know, I mean, at, at one point it was, our route was like, uh, Tucson, San Diego, as far as far west as Tucson, southwest Tucson, Las Vegas, um, then all of California. And then we started branching into Oregon and Seattle. And, and then we, we got booked to do something. We were playing in Los Angeles at some private party in 94, 95, or 94. And um, uh, what's the Ticketmaster hired us to do three shows on the East Coast to do private parties for them. Uh-huh. And we went to New York and I went and I scoured the, I scoured the papers of the New York times to see what bands were playing where and what and when, and found this um, night at this place called Coney Island high called Coney Island high at this really popular place on St. Mark's and met this band that was doing a kind of a jazzy Betty Boopy kind of a thing. And they became our friends and they booked us in that night and we started playing New York. And then the next thing you know, Boom. The next time we went to New York, we went to this <laughs> bar and they were playing our record in this bar. Like we, like we were so nobody. Cool. Yeah. And we walk into this really hit bar and they're playing our entire record. And we're just like, all right, you know, what is, what is going on? Like yeah. this is, this is starting to really happen. And then 95 is when, uh, 95 is when the Derby happened. And that was our Wednesday night gig yeah. in Los Angeles. I remember that. And that went, that went from like 50 people a night to, like you said, lines around the corner for, I mean, we did it for probably two and a half years. And I mean, it was, it was insane. I know it looks insane, man. Like you see some of the old uh, videos and stuff. It looks incredible. You guys have played like, have you played every state? Yeah. Every single state. No way. That's insane. Yeah. Every single state. Yeah. No, it's crazy. That's incredible, man. Are you seeing like, you know how like we had our thing in the, in Ventura, your little music scene. Are you seeing that like in your travels anywhere else? Like, is there any, any kind of cool music stuff going on in any other States that you can think of? Like that, that, that kind of a scene is like brewing. You know, it's, it's, it's impossible for me to, to get a a read on anything anymore because Uh the, you know, because when you're, when you're touring, when you're touring, the only thing you really see is, especially when you're bus touring, um, you just see who the, who the openers are. Right. And so, cause you're, you're so, I mean, you're, you're playing, if you're out for a month and so if you're out for four weeks and there's 30 days and four weeks, um, the, 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 the odds are you're probably going to have four days off yeah. out of that entire month. Okay. So you're just, you're just recouping, you know, the whole time is you're, you're just recouping. So you don't, you don't get out as much as you, yeah. you know what I mean? Even yeah. when I was young, even when I was a younger guy, you know, it's like, you're still trying to recoup because I'm the singer. So and sure. the only way to recoup as a singer is you have to sleep. If you don't sleep, you don't sing well. Right. <laughs> Voice is jacked up. Yeah. And there was a, there was a, there was a good stretch of time where I wasn't singing well because I was burning the candle hard. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great video. I think your, I think your trumpet player did. It's on YouTube, but it shows like the early days. I think it's called, I think it's titled Big Bad Voodoo Daddy Early Days, and it's a great like yeah. documentary. Did he do that? Your yeah, trumpet yeah. player. 
Yeah, Glenn, Glenn, yeah, uh, Glenn, Glenn Myhetka. Yeah, he did it. Yeah, and it's really good because it gets the it gives the vibe. Um, and for folks, go see that that video on YouTube. It's really cool. Um, but it shows you guys from you know you're in the van and you're you know it gives that vibe of like you know do you guys just yeah. starting to to pick up steam in the derby and and uh, playing shows and then lines around the buildings and it's just a really good documentary. But the cool thing I like at the end is. You guys, I think you're in an airport or after a show or something, yeah. and you guys are walking yeah. to go to your first bus, and you guys are yeah. just stoked <laughs> out of your gourd, and you're all, but you, we're getting a bus, you know? You have no well, idea, yeah. man. We, we went up and we went across the country when our record was breaking. Like, we had a, we had a, top, we had a top 10 record in, in America, and we were yes. still in the van that we had bought like two years before that. Uh -huh. And we had gone up and back to New York twice. <laughs> and, and before that, it was five years of nothing but hardcore van touring just to get to that point. So when we got that bus, man, it was like, it was gloves off, man. It was, it was, <laughs> what was it, it like? Was all in. What was it like it when you amazing. walked in the bus? Like, was it just like, <laughs> it, it was the dream. It was the dream come true. Were you guys it just stoked or just land, lounging yeah, around in there and just like, yeah. Claiming your mm -hmm. bunks. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and, and the thing, the thing is, is that the thing that was crazy about it was, is that I remember, um, we, it was, it was St. Louis. So that was in St. Louis. And I remember we played this really famous club called Mississippi Nights. And it was everybody, you name it, from from like Muddy Waters and and and, and Wolf to the replacements, you name it. Everybody came through to play this this club. This this is one of those clubs. And we played the club and it was out of control. It was just super fun. And we were in our van or our bus and we were we get in the bus at the end of the show and then you drive to the next yeah. gig yeah. overnight. Your bus driver drives. So you actually have some place to sleep. So we were all so excited. We had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> and all of a sudden the weather just turned south hard. It was, it was, it was, it was raining and it was thunder. And in, on the East coast, the weather is way different. And so there was, I remember there were fireflies everywhere. And then we were driving, and all of a sudden, all these thunderstorms were in front of us on this on this on this road on this freeway, and so we were all huddled up in the front lounge because you know we were all so used to being on top of each other in a van <laughs> that we didn't know to go to the back of the van or whatever. So we're all huddled up in the front of the lounge, and we're watching this light show of thunder. And in, I don't know if you've ever seen thunder where it turns into spider webs and it just like sort of oh, it yeah. like. Go, it goes over your head and it just like spatters out. It's like the most unbelievable thing. And I'll never forget Dirk, our bass player. He walked in, he put in the CD player, dark side of the moon. We turned all the lights out in the bus. And the very oh, first night cool. we had on the bus, we were cruising down the, down the highway and this light show of lightning in front of us on our first bus night one, man. I remember thinking, uh, there's nowhere else in earth I want to be than here right now, man. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> That's awesome. What's the formula to keeping a band together? Respect. Mm -hmm. Respect. Yeah. Keeping a band together. So if you talking about keeping a band together to just reiterate that big bad Buddha daddy in April. So right now we're in January. Yeah. In April, we're going to be 30 years old. That's nuts. 30. Yeah, and it's all the same guys. We've only 
We've only replaced one guy from the original crew. The, the original five guys that got on the stage from the very beginning, we've only replaced one guy, and we did that within the first uh, year and change. Yeah. So so it's been the same guys, and we've just added guys. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, I think the guy that's been in the band the least has been in the band for uh, 27 years. Mm-hmm. 20, 26 years, I think. So, I mean, it's it's in it. So I would say that just really respect. And then my my goal with Big Bad Buddha Daddy was to not expose weakness. Mm-hmm. So going through and, and understanding my strengths and weaknesses and only playing to my strengths, understanding Kurt's strengths and weaknesses and, and playing to his strengths and not exposing the obvious, like not exposing the weaknesses of the band, not making you do something that you can't do or you're not able to do, but expose the things that you do well. And then if you do that, I think you're going to, you're going to get a lot better results. And that's been my, my mantra really since, since the beginning is, is really just play to our strengths and and not try to be something that we're not. How did you learn that? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm a pretty optimistic human. Uh-huh. By, just by trait, uh-huh. you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm much more, I'm much more ready to see what can we do opposed to what can't we do? Cause it's really easy to get caught in that, in that, in the negative field of, mm-hmm. of the way the world works. It's yeah. people go towards, they go towards the car wreck always. Mm-hmm. And I tend to, I tend to not, I tend to not look, I tend to just keep plowing straight. You know, um, when you're a, a band leader like yourself, you know, that's a, a, a really good trait. You know, I mean, if I was in a band and you were the band leader and you were, you know, you had that kind of like optimistic, positive attitude to move forward, you're, you're, the band's going to, you know, I'm going to stay there and I'm going right. to, and I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep working with this dude and, and, uh, try to do my best, you know? And I think a lot of the, the problems with bands, um, just from my experiences, you get, you get egos, you get, yeah. you know, um, you get people wanting to do different things or whatever it is, you know, and it, it breaks bands up for sure. Don't you think? I agree with that a hundred percent. You know, I think I, I had to take, I had to take the ego if I wanted to do this. And like I said, using my strengths instead of yeah. exposing the weaknesses, you know, it, a good example is the kid, the, my trumpet player. Yeah. When he first joined the band, he was the first guy to come in. Uh, he replaced Ralph Otrian on trumpet. And when the kid came, um, you know, I was doing most of the solos with guitar and whatnot. And the kid came in and he was, I hired him because he was, he was just a great player. He's a, he's a, just a, he was a great soloist and he had a great energy and, and I just, everything about the guy I liked. And, and so here we are, I'm getting all of the attention for my guitar playing and for the writing songs or whatever. And then this guy comes in and is playing trumpet and I tell him, you know, go stand at the front of the stage and go, Go take, go take this, go take the audience yeah. by the, by the balls. And, and he did. And then the next thing you know, he was getting a huge reaction. And instead of going, man, no, he's taking my light away. I'm like, I got to get more of that going on. I'm going to build that guy nice. into this persona. I gave him the kid name. And so he became the kid. And I was like, you know, just, just working to his, to his strength and, and seeing what goes on instead of my ego going, Nah, man, you're getting too much of the limelight now, man. This is all about me. Yeah. It, it, it was never that. It was, it was never that. I mean, there's ego has to be involved 
to a degree when you're a songwriter because sure. you know who are you to sit up there and say here's my song we're going to play it like this but so you know there has to be a little bit of ego but then being an open human to go well if we did it like this it may sound better and then you know what i'm saying like there's uh -huh. a, a whole chain of events that you can do to like yeah i don't know i guess maybe you know just be a more open collaborator human being partner whatever i love it i love it so how does your writing process work like when you get when you're writing a song do you do you start writing it on the guitar or the piano and then you like say, Hey, let's, let's, uh, I've got these chords together, you guys, and let's, let's try this. And how, do, how does that go down with big, bad booty daddy? It, it depends. Sometimes and I would say that the bulk of the music is, um, the bulk of the music for the most part is there's a radio playing in my head uh -huh. and there's a million different stations going on. And I know that's not, I know that's not, <laughs> no, I get you know, it. I get it. Yeah. Far, far fetched, but there's a million different stations going on and, the one that's the loudest usually is the, the music of Big Bad Buddha Daddy. Mm -hmm. And so I just hone in on what I'm hearing and I usually hear them completely finished. So they're, they're finished. There's mm -hmm. not lyrics, but they're, they're finished. The melody, the chord changes, the horns, everything it's, it's in there and I can hear it. And so if I'm, if I hear it more towards the piano, I'll sit at my piano and play and, and, and suss it out there. Mm -hmm. And then I'll usually either a make a demo by myself Mm -hmm. Or I'll bring it to Josh, our piano player, who is is the most he's the most legitimate uh, musician in the band. Dude's and talented, he's talented, man. He's very talented, and he's yeah. a USC graduate with an orchestration degree, and 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 mm -hmm. he's he won jazz before Big Bad. He won jazz competitions, and he's a really he's a really proficient player and and just a really open musician. And so he, I'll bring it to him, and then we'll go back and forth on these tunes, and and then so it's like that. And then there's sometimes I just, I just hear a chord and I just, that's it. Mm -hmm. There's the song. And I just, I'll write it right there then. And it'll just come out in five minutes. Yes. Yes. Do you find and those are usually the best ones, right? It's, it's like, it's something that is like inside of you. And then the songs that take the less time are the best songs. Mm. Absolutely. And you're not trying to force it. Like I've tried to force, cause we've had to make so many records, you know? Yeah. And, and so the, you know, that's a lot of music that has to get done. So I, I've, I've listened back to some of the records where I, I had to force my ideas on unflushed out idea on songs. And, and, and I listen back and it's, it's painful, you know, it's painful to hear these things. Were you I just want to go back and fix them all. Were you rushed because of uh, record contract stuff? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that, is that what happens? You, you got your, you get yeah. this major label and they go, Hey dude, we need, we need this album out by this time. And you're like going, Oh my God. And you guys are trying to get yeah, it. That, that's what happened. That, that's what happened to me. I mean, yeah. we, we made that first record and there's a, I mean, I'm sure this is the most cliche thing in the record business that, that anyone has ever said, this is, it, it couldn't be any more true. And I'm, I'm here to stand to tell the truth on that one is you have your whole life to write your first record mm -hmm. and you have six weeks to follow it up. <laughs> gnarly you know? yeah gnarly and, and it's it's really what happened to us like we put that record out and i had written all those songs over the course of of you know four or five years and we had honed them on the road and they were all oh, yeah. they were all proven you know all that music was proven and then we literally went out on the road and we were on the road the whole time we were making the record too 
because swingers had happened. And so we became super popular at that point. So everybody wanted to hear us. And the swinger soundtrack came out with three of our songs. So we were able to tour no problem all across the country before our first major label record ever even came out. And then, so we toured, I think we toured for 18 straight months. Damn. And, and we made our first major record. And then after that 18 months, our manager said to us, we need you to be back in the studio in six weeks. Like you have to be back in the studio in six weeks and we need 14 new songs. Damn. And that was after playing. I mean, I think we did in that, in that, in that 18 month period, I think we did something like 370 something shows. Damn. That's and so, yeah, it was really tricky. And then I had to like, you know, I had to put, I had to put the pieces back to my, my, my life because being gone for so long and, mm-hmm. and, you know, just everything. And so, yeah, there's, you know, if people, you know, all the glamour and all the this and that, but, but yeah, there is a price that you have to pay if you're going to, if you're going to play in that realm for sure. If you could give advice to up and coming band, um, you know, that's, or, or there's, there's a band, there's bands out there that are trying to, you know, uh, you know, move to the next level and, and then the next level and that sort of thing. What, what advice can you give those guys? Um, I mean, they're hearing it right now, like how hard it is and what you got to do, but what, yeah. what, what advice would you give them? I would say that, that, uh, I have a young, I have a son, I have a 20 year old, 21 year old son who is in music school right now. He's a drummer. And, um, and it's, it's basically what I tell him is, is listen to your voice listen to your inner voice like trust trust your inner voice like you have to trust that like if something if something smells like bullshit and and that's exactly your first feeling like bam there it is Mm -hmm. you know define whether if it's insecurity or not because there's there's going to be you know there's going to be anxiety and insecurity with every major thing that happens but that first voice that pops into your head is for me in my experience it's usually the right one. So true. So a lot of people don't listen to that inner voice for sure. Yeah. You have to listen to that. And, 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 and I mean, shit, man, bet on yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just bet on yourself. I mean, yeah, you hear the stories about how hard you have to work and do you have an internet presence? You know, I don't, I don't even care about any of that stuff, man. Yeah. And I just don't even care about it. I think that you just follow your gut, work super hard and, and just be true you know? Absolutely. So are you still producing stuff? Are you, I I had heard back in years ago that um, you were working with uh, Eric LaMare doing something or. Yeah. I I mean, I, I I really like working with, um, yes, I, I, I produced a lot. I produced Uh a lot of records and I mixed a lot of records Mm -hmm. and, and it's, I've I've done that kind of stuff and I slowed it all down Mm -hmm. to a crawl because for me now it's I've worked so hard for so long on so many different projects. You know, I'd be, we'd be big bad would be out on a big, on a, on a tour, you know, we'd be out for, I don't know, like over the course of say three months, we'd be out, you know, three quarters of the time. And then I would come home and I'd have three weeks off and I'd have a a record to mix or a soundtrack to mix or something. Yeah. And so it would take me that entire time. And then we'd go back out and do the same thing again with the tour. So I never had a lot of free time to get my head straight in the, in the 
personal world, you know, like the, mm -hmm. the regular world. So I stopped doing it, but I'll still work with people. I'll still work with people um, that I really like. Like Eric Lemaire is one of those guys that, that he would be somebody that I would always, you know, stop yeah. to work with on whatever it would be just because I like who that guy is. Like, I yeah. like, I like him, you know, I like who he is. I like the way he plays. I like the way he thinks. Yeah. I like who he is like to his core. So the, the Eric Lemaire's of the world, that those are the people that I say that I, I, I work with people like that. I've got several people that I still do that with. And I don't care if there's a budget or not when it comes to those kinds of things, you know, mm -hmm. for me, it's just, you know, the, the experience of playing music that feels right, you know, Absolutely. Eric's a talented dude too. I remember seeing him. He is. Yeah. He's got a lot of soul and he's, he's, he's way more talented than, than he even knows that he is, you know? Yeah. Good, good songwriting too, man. And, uh, the songs were awesome. That Absolutely. So a lot of people don't know what a music producer does. So can you explain what you do as a producer with, a, an artist? For me, my production is, ground floor which 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 starts with the song so i'll sit with a i'll sit with the the main songwriter or the main songwriters if it's a band mm -hmm. i'll sit with the the songwriter or the songwriters and we'll listen to the we'll listen to the songs so let's take three songs and let's take give me your three best songs right now and let's strip it down to either an acoustic guitar or a piano and i want you to play me these songs and i want you to I want you to convey to me what you are trying to say or what you're trying to do with mm -hmm. these songs. G give me what you're trying to do. And if you're just trying to make me dance, then that's fine. Let's start with that. So then what we'll do is then we'll find what's the groove that's going to make me dance. Or if you're trying to make me feel sad, let's find the mood for it. So it's really taking a song, stripping it down, and then trying to find what what is the value of that song? Like, what is this song trying to do? Mm -hmm. And then once you do that, if the band isn't the right band to play the arrangements that we come up with, then the producer's trick is to find the right guys. And it usually starts with the drummer. And you usually find a drummer that can really, that can really find the feel of whatever it is you're trying to do. You know, my, my motto is always good band, good drummer good band, great drummer, great band. Right. So it, that's, I usually start there. So then and that's, that's, the, that's the first part. And then in, in today's world, then what I would do is we would then go into the studio to record these songs. Once we've got all these songs rehearsed and they feel just like they're supposed to feel in the rehearsal room and demoed, mm -hmm. then we go into the studio and we, record this thing and then I will I will push buttons and I will turn dogs. I can I can I can record I can engineer and then I can mix and I can edit. And so that then that's what my job as a producer is is to then try to serve the uh artist what they're trying to do. Do you, you know, have just try to make sure Yeah. Do you have do you have certain tricks like let's, let's say that uh a trumpet player isn't quite getting the sound that you want or the feel that you want. How do you get that trumpet player to, you know, get what you're looking for? I think if the trumpet player is 
I think if the trumpet player or the or the musician, let's just say musician, because I don't want to yeah. single out. Yeah, yeah. I would say I would say if the musician isn't able to do what the song dictates, I replace him. Mm-hmm. And it's just just for the record. It yeah. isn't for it isn't for the. It, I just replace them, you know. Like I said, I'll, I, it starts usually with the rhythm section, usually. And mm-hmm. if you get a great drum track, that usually makes everybody play so much better, anyway. But, but you know, the um, yeah, I just I find the, and I have a pool of guys that I know I can grab that will bring a, a ray of sunshine into a session. I mean, uh, that I and I learned that on your sessions. You know, I learned that on one of your sessions, guy. Yeah. You guys were doing the Lion Eyes record, and Jeff Harris brought in Slide Hyde. Yes. To play a solo. God, and, I can't believe and, you remember that. That's cool. Yeah. They, I, I, are you kidding? I saw Dick right before he, I saw Slide right before he died in Hawaii. We remained friends from that day on. We remained friends. How cool, man. And he blew me away. And it was like, he came in and he, he shined such a, high function of light onto your session. I'm like, there's guys that can come in and do that. And that's, I, I created a pool of guys, you know, that can play in all these different instruments that can do that. They can come in and they don't bring a negative attitude. They bring a positive attitude. They're coming into somebody else's session and they're just trying to make it better. They're giving, they're giving their talent to the, to the artist. And, you know, hopefully the artists are receptive to that. So that's, that's the way that I, I get around it. If I don't think that the, the player can get there, if I if I think a player can get there, then I just go to psychology one on one. You know, mm-hmm. is it tough? Is it tough love, or do I need to hold their hand? You know, if mm-hmm. it's tough love, if they work better with tough love, then I'll get a little tougher and I'll be a little more firm. But if that if that makes them go into their shell and they play shittier, then I'm gonna I'm gonna give them I'm gonna hold their hand and I'm gonna try and build their confidence so they can find it and show them that I'm there for them to get there. I'm here, man. I know you can get there. I, I've heard you do it before. You yeah. know? So there's, there's, it's, there's a lot of psychology involved in there too. Yes. There's a lot involved with that. I, one time I think it, uh, with lion eyes, we, one of the musicians was having a hard time getting to the, to the spot that we needed. And I went into the booth and said to him, man, you know, I think it was a solo the horn solos or something dude just imagine you're playing in, an, in a dark alley by yourself there's we're not here you're just by yourself and just and just play that solo you know and it was like i think it was a song like girl or something of, of lion eyes that played a song that we have and the dude just nailed it you know just by putting in his mind that yeah. he, he could do that you know it, it totally changed the whole vibe instead of being nervous or whatever you know and i think that i think a lot of t- I think a lot of times too, guy is the psychology behind what you did is giving him, giving him a safe place to go. Yeah. Is, is one thing, but also showing him that you care enough about him and the song Mm. that you're going to go into his space and Mm -hmm. tell him and try to help him through. I, sometimes I think Mm. that is huge too. You know, I think that's a huge thing too. I know if I was struggling and somebody, you know, somebody that I, you know, that was a songwriter or the, producer because i know you did a lot of the i know you did a lot of the you know the the production and and you know i know you were one of the brainchilds of that band and so it, it means a lot to the, the person that that you would take the time to go in and do that is even though you know male ego would never allow him to say you know thanks for doing that but you know, <laughs> yeah. 
in the same, you know, it, it's all there. I mean, my guys, I don't, I haven't heard thank you from a guy in my band in 25 years. So. That's funny. Are you, are all your albums self-produced or you have somebody come in and, and help you? Um, when you guys are, no. it's all, all you, even, even the major label ones were self-produced. Yeah. The, they, the, the capital had two guys that were in finger quotes producers. They didn't do, they didn't do anything. They just listened to me because <laughs> I knew what I, I knew what I wanted, you know, and, and it was working. So they just let me, they let me just do it. And then, you know, they, the suggestions they made were, were such small incidental, you know, inconsequential things. I'm just like, sure. You know, yeah. you want a finger snap there? Okay, that's cool. Uh-huh. As long as you're not touching my arrangement. <laughs> How cool is that you though? Know? You got, got that much freedom, right? That's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah, I think it's, I think I was too stupid not to know that, that you know, that I was getting away with it. Uh-huh. So God, God bless stupidity. <laughs> your guys's, my, your guys's uh, horn arrangements are so badass. You know, I'm, I've Thanks. been, I've been listening to, um, actually a bunch of songs that, that, uh, I've never listened to, you know, just, just yeah. doing my research on the band, uh, the last couple of days. And, um, those horn lines are, are freaking badass, man. And I'm super, super impressed by them. And how, how does that go down with those, those horn arrangements? The horn arrangements, it, it was, I, I have a certain sound in my head. Yeah. And I, I don't have enough uh, education to know how to put that to paper. So the way it works, and I would say that when the horn arrangements really, when I really found the voice for Big Bad Little Daddy was a record called How Big Can You Get? Yeah. And it was, it, was the, it was a record, it's a tribute to Cab Calloway. And, and I loved that era. I loved the era of the, the early 30s. I love that era of, of, of music. I, I really dig it. And I thought cab would be a good person to expose during that period because it was everything. He was one of the hottest guys of the time and he had the best musicians and he had the best arrangers and, and he was in the cotton club. He took over for Duke Ellington in the cotton club for this, you know, for the biggest show in all of music in, in Harlem. And, and, and so the music was insane. So, Really, the way it works is I work really closely with Josh, our piano player on that record. And, and we really, we really tried to nail that era, but still bring this like kind of a wild darkness to what, what we were doing. You know, like we really, I had this real clear sound in my head. And, and I think we, we really found it on that record more than in any of the other records up to that point. I think we really found a, a unique blend of tricky hard musical parts and also sing songy catchy yeah. i think it all kind of caught up at that point you know i thought you know the, the earlier stuff was a little more rudimentary which was great because it's all a learning process mm-hmm. but when we got to that record i think from that record on it, it sort of you know launched us into another another sort of thing so the record the, the arrangements really come from a certain era of music and something that I've always been really attracted to. And then Josh and I really just putting in hours and hours and hours on each song, just trying to get those arrangements to be, yeah, you know, right on and, and just so much listening, you know, oh a lot God. of research. 
you know, you, it, a lot of people have probably have no clue how intricate they are and, you know, mm. where the punches are and, you know, yeah. wh- and what's going on. They just know it sounds good. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, this is cool. Oh, this is, this is old timey. You have yeah. no idea like yeah. what, what it, what it takes. <laughs> it's like the easiest stuff of that genre is that thing. The easiest music sounding to you is the absolutely most tricky stuff ever. Yeah. It's, it's really good, man. I'm, I really enjoy it. Hey, whatever happened? Whatever happened to uh, old Jeff Harris trombone, hairbone? Dude, so good, man. He's doing so well. He's in Sarasota, Florida. Uh-huh. Uh, he's he's a corrections officer. He's a he's a he's a like a he's a very high high ranking uh, police officer, police enforcement. Oh no way! Yep, he has two beautiful daughters, two twins. Uh-huh. Uh, the, him and Lori are still together. They um, adopted two twins. And the girls are doing amazing. They're in, both in great colleges. And yeah, Jeff is awesome, man. Jeff and Lori are, they're, they're doing great. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> I know. Jeff, Jeff is, I still see him once in a while when we're out there. And he is, Do you? he is the same. Yeah, he is, he's a good dude, man. Just a good dude. Dude, he, um, he, when he first came into Lion Eyes, you know, way back when, he, he was such a blessing to our band. Is He was a great trombone player and just, super positive dude and we just had a great yeah. time you know yeah. um playing with him traveling with him and, and whatnot it was awesome it's total character man that guy's a total character i really dug him a lot too and so you guys have can you can you go through the band like the names of everyone in the band real quick yep um dirk shoemaker is the string bass player mm-hmm. uh been in the band from day one um kurt Sutergren is the drummer been in the band from day one um Andy Rowley plays baritone saxophone. He's been in the band since day one. Um, Glenn Marhevka, Glenn the Kid Marhevka, is the trumpet player. He's trumpet one, and he uh, he does the solos. And he's been in the band since '95. Um, Carl Hunter is our tenor sax player. He plays tenor, alto, clarinet, and soprano. He's been in the band since '90. Seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh Levy is our piano player and arranger, and Josh has been in the band since '97. And then we have two extra guys that we carry with us, two extra horn players to round out the voices mm-hmm. of the band. And Alex, Alex Henderson is our trombone player, and Alex has been in the band since 2001 or 2002. And Alex comes from No Doubt. He was in No. He was in the early No Doubt days. Okay. Yeah, and he was he played with Brian Setzer uh, Orchestra for a really long time, and he played with Pancho Sanchez uh, Jazz Band, mm-hmm. Latin Jazz Band, and he was actually coming out of Pancho, I think, when we got him. And then um, Mitchell Cooper is our lead trumpet player, and Mitch has been with us for about five or six years, and he's just a boy wonder. I mean, you remember how how screaming Alan was? Yeah. Mitch Cooper is a is a force to be reckoned with. I'm not, <laughs> no joke. I mean, he's just. He's unflappable. I mean, our, our charts are so hard and Mitch just screams through them every night. Those dudes, no those dudes lips, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. They can't, they can't, they can't have anything wrong with their lips. No chap lips, no bloody lips. They can't, they can't play. Hey, mm-hmm. so how many, how many horns is that? That's five horns, five horns. So could yeah. you explain to like the folks out there, like how a horn section works, like from like a chords pr- perspective? You know, yeah, the, um, go yeah. for it. Okay, so, so the way I the way I look at 
the way I look at um, horns is is um, melody and color. And so in a song, like, because I really like to push the horns forward. A lot of people will just use them as a color and just, they'll just be pads. So when you hit a chord on a piano, if you're a non-musician, if you hit a chord on a piano, you're usually hitting the one, the, the one tone, the third tone, and the fifth tone, and the seventh tone. So you've got those four notes that usually, they, that's the standard method of, of, of a chord, and it could be a minor chord, a major chord, a major seven, a minor seven. There's all these different extensions from that, but the major and the minor is the, is the key is essential for it. And a lot of times the horns basically just pad that, and they just add color to a song. But with what I like to do is I like to make them, I like to mix that. I like to mix the melody of the song. I like to give the horns that melody, and then I like to then chord out those those sections so that it's so there's a real I don't know um, there's a real um, visual element to that it, it becomes it becomes more like a soundtrack it, 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 the horns alone the, the horn section alone by itself would give you a it would give you a, it would evoke a feeling and then everything else around that you know just enhances what is is going on and what got me there guy and it's funny because I didn't learn chord structures and things like that for horns when I was going to music school. I was basically learning, you know, just theory and things like that for a guitar because I went to the Guitar Institute. Yeah. So, so in the late 80s, the early 90s, the um, Capitol Records released a box set of the Beach Boys' um, Pet Sounds. Mm-hmm. And on Pet Sounds, there's, there's one disc on there that's vocals only. And it's basically the arrangements of the vocals for all those songs on Pet Sounds. So it's only vocals. So all you're hearing is these chord voices and, and that blew my mind. Yeah. It absolutely blew my mind. And that's what I wanted to do with the, with the chords of the horns and the melody of the horns is to do what Brian Wilson was doing with the vocals. So I just basically tried to emulate that very thing through a certain type of music, but do it with horns. That's a great analogy for sure. God, what harmonies those guys had. Jeez. That thing still blows my mind. I still <laughs> listen and I still get goosebumps because there's no pro tools there, man. Those guys are just, they're just singing the parts <laughs> right. perfectly, you know? You know, so on a chord structure, for those that don't know, so like, would you put your your berry down because it's a it lower tone. So you would put the berry sax down, you know, like if we're looking at a C chord, let's like a C, E. G, um, and then right. throw a B in there, you know? So like, if you have a chord, you'd put the, the berry on the C and in the alto. Not always. Okay. Yeah, how, not how, always. Would, how would you do it? Well, it just, it depends. It yeah. really, it, it really, really depends. If, if I, I call it walking the dog. If I, if uh-huh. I, if I need, if I need the berry to walk the dog, mm-hmm. which is basically either playing in the same register as the bass. Uh huh. You know, I'm looking for something for low end. So if I'm looking yeah. for the low end part of it, then then I'll put the berry down there. But the berry sounds insanely good in the upper registers yeah, when you have other instruments because it has a, 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 a more pinched nasally sound when you start getting up there. Uh-huh. So if you have a soprano or so, I don't know, there's, there's a real interesting blend when you bring the berry up. So a lot of times we use the berry up in the mixes when we're doing like big bandy kind of things. But 
if you were to if you were to hear a normal part that Andy has to play in an, in a given evening, he has the most interesting parts of all because there's no melody in what Andy plays. And so if he were to play it by himself, you know, the most advanced dog would give you the most, he would have his head turned so sideways when you're trying to figure out like, what is, does that even make sense? But he's just, he's flipping in and out of all the different chord voicings. Okay. So, you know, I remember the one time that one of the funniest things that have ever happened to us with that very same thing is um, we have an arrangement for um, the Star Spangled Banner. So, da, 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 ba, 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 da, da, but we have it all voiced out. So Josh did this great arrangement, and Andy's part is wild. It is like, and so we're playing at um, Candlestick Park, and it was opening day, and the Big Bad Hood Eddie Horns are doing the national anthem. <laughs> and they didn't do any rehearsals. The people, they're like, oh, no, no, we do the Giants. Like, we do this all the time. It's all good. So me and the rhythm section, we're in the, we're in the, the, sta- the, sta- you know, the stadium, watching it and they the guys come out right in front of the pitcher's mound and all of the microphones are turned off except for andy's they they, they do the star spangled banner and it's andy and it's like it people must have thought it was the most out jazz like thing ever and i thought people were gonna boo to be honest with you man because it was like it was so out it was unbelievable man and me and josh and kurt and Dirk, we were just pie on our face we're just like oh shit this sounds awful i have no idea that's crazy man what's the uh what's the craziest thing that's ever happened to you guys like on a at a show like all of i was i was saying in the uh the intro that you guys have played probably it's probably more than this now but it's 2600 shows no, we're we're thirty six hundred now. Thirty six hundred, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. I was gonna say that. You know, the gig right before the pandemic was our three thousandth show. Oh, was it? Yeah. yeah. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy, man. And just you yeah. know, like the other the other stat, it's probably uh, I don't know if it's more now as well, but it was like two hundred and sixty consecutive sold out concerts. Man, that's mind boggling. Yeah, that was a crazy time. That was what I was discussing earlier when yeah. when things were just it just felt like, you know, you it, should, it was yeah, it was crazy. It was just crazy. Um What's the, the cra- craziest thing that yeah, what's, ever, what's cra- the craziest the, thing, man? Yeah, the craziest thing that ever happened, I think, was we were playing in Baltimore and we were playing on they have these big piers in Baltimore and we're we're playing this concert outdoors and all these kids were going crazy and on two piers to our left, somebody drove a car out on there and something happened and the whole thing blew up. <laughs> why you guys car, are playing? Yeah, while we're playing. The car blew up on this giant like, you know, pier because Baltimore is like a is a pier, is a is a import export kind of a place. So a lot of stuff comes into Baltimore in that harbor. And so these are gigantic piers, they're gigantic, you know, sections and they took this one and turned it into a an outdoor amphitheater. And then and two over, and I would say probably, I don't know, 200 yards away from us, like some car was out on the pier and it just exploded. I mean, just like, like in the movies. Damn. Yeah, it was crazy. And so what did you guys do when it, when that happened? Did you have to stop or? 
No way, man. We was part of the show. <laughs> that was part of the show. Oh, perfect. <laughs> oh my God. What's the best show you guys have ever done? Like what, what's the show that sticks out in your mind where you were just like stoked out of your mind? Like this, everything was together and you're just the crowd. The audience was just into it. I mean, I think probably, I think it was probably for me. I mean, there's so many because there's, there's so many yeah. whatevers, but I think probably the first real big, 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 big one for me was the very first time we headlined the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, how and cool was, was that? Huh? And it was, it was, it was our, we've, we've done it probably 14 times. We've done the Hollywood Bowl, I think 14 times. And the first time we played it, we played it with other groups. So no, the first time we played it was Playboy Jazz Festival. Mm-hmm. So we played the Playboy Jazz Festival and it went really well. So then they had us come back and do a night of, it was like the Glenn Miller Orchestra and the Count Basie Orchestra and the new upstarts, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, you know, 50 years of swing music, you know, so we can, we did that and that went really well. So then they had us come back and do two nights on our own. So it was just an evening with Big Bad Voodoo Daddy at the Hollywood Bowl and it was both nights were sold out. And I remember it was, I was so nervous. It was unbelievably, it was, I was so unbelievably nervous to do this gig. And then I remember midway through and I remember how well it was going. And I remember thinking like, I I mean, I don't know how I'm going to top this, you know, I just don't know how I'm going to top this feeling. Like this was, I remember being a little teeny kid driving past um, the Hollywood bowl, going to a Dodger games with my grandmother. And I remember seeing like Louis Armstrong's name on the billboard. You know what I mean? So like yeah. to me, that's the places like where Louis Armstrong and people like that played, not, not yeah. big bad dude daddy from Ventura, California. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Uh-huh. Isn't that amazing going from the garage to the, to there? I mean, that's just, it's unbelievable. I, 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 and I don't take any of it for granted. It's like, I, it's, it's so, um, yeah, it's it's so amazing, and it's it's great that I'm at a stage in my life where I get it. I get how lucky I am, and I get how how incredible it is. And then, and I also am proud that I didn't take it for granted. My guys didn't take it for granted, and we're still willing to work just as hard to maintain a certain quality that we have that we feel is the you know the benchmark of what we are. Yeah, and we still work really really hard. We still play. And we, some nights, I think we sound better than we've ever sounded ever. That's you know? cool. Which is pretty, it's pretty great. You know, and, um, and we're still, I'm always writing new music. We're working on new music right now. We're working on what our 30 years is going to look like this year. We're look, working on that already. And it's, it's starting to book really, really well now, it, you know, just because we're coming out of the pandemic. So yeah. touring was, was really tricky. Yeah. And our Christmas tour was the first Chris, was the first tour that we've done in three years that, that made it all the way through that is the last, yeah, the last three years it, it, at some point in every tour we've done, it got derailed from COVID. Yeah. That tour is still really popular, huh? That Christmas tour. Yeah. The Christmas tour is definitely super. And it just, it just feels like it just builds steam every year. So that's cool. Yeah. Pretty good one. So I want to talk about the high, the high, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's a, there's so many uh, musicians out there that, that don't handle the high and the high I'm talking about, you know, like 
you're you're performing you know at the hollywood bowl you're receiving all this positive energy from the audience thousands of people you're feeling that energy and then you walk off stage and then so you have this 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 high that's you know it's, that not a lot of people feel right um, yeah. they're not in that position in your position so they don't understand that feeling that you have so how do you deal with that um, that high coming off stage and coming down and all that. And then, you know, um, not, not getting that high. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it, it's a lifelong balancing act. I think, you know, when I was younger, I did it with alcohol because alcohol is a natural depressant, which a lot of people don't really think of it that way. But, but I would come off stage and I'd have a few drinks and, mm-hmm. it, and that would just mellow me right out. And then I could go to sleep. Mm-hmm. But when I realized that that was a crutch and that was like not going to be a good way for me to, to, to turn, then I, and then I wouldn't drink after shows or before shows or anything. And then, and then you have to deal with like being up until four o'clock in the morning with your brain spinning out of control. So (laughs) since my brain was spinning out of control, I would just write everything. You know, I would just write down, I would use that energy to like, write lyrics to write game plans for like, okay, next year I want to do this and this, this. Mm. So I would use it. Like I'd use that mm-hmm. manic energy to, uh, as a, as a positive force. And then as, as I started to sort of figure out the balance, um, then I realized that, you know, if, if I go for a, if I run three miles or four miles, you know, every day or before shows, and then I do the show, I'm pretty, I'm pretty straight. Like, so physical, a lot of physical activity Mm -hmm. is, is, is required for touring, Mm -hmm. you know, and then trying to make sure that I get as much sleep as possible. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's really, and I I know it's very unglamorous to say that, but at first it was definitely, it was definitely alcohol that would calm me down. And then after that, it was, it was really just trying to be super, super busy and work out really, you know, work out really hard and get, a lot of anxiety or whatever it is that, you know, is pulled out because I didn't realize how much stress was on my body and and on me all the time. Cause it's, you're like, when you're a touring musician constantly, the one thing guy that's really a trip is you're kind of like a bullfighter when you're the singer because you have to stand out in front of that crowd every night and you have to win them over. You know, you have to win them. You have to, you have to get them to trust you. So you have to come out and you have to be fearless. You have to come out in this, like in this suit of armor. Yes. And, and so night after night, after night, after night, you just, you're just used to the way you feel, but we had never taken any time off ever. This Mm -hmm. band had never taken time off. And then when the pandemic hit, it was, it was the craziest thing because then we were forced. And so after like six months of not gigging, and I hadn't done no gigging in six months. I hadn't done any gigging in, in a month in, at that point, 27 years, 28 years. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, we had gigged so much. We were averaging like 120, 130 shows um, a year just right before the pandemic because we had to slow it down. We would average 180. That was like our normal number. So I didn't realize how much your body, how tight your body gets and how like in discord your body gets when you have to perform so much, because I was so used to it. I never knew what your body felt like when it was relaxed. (laughs) 
Yeah. So after we, after I, I got used to that, now I'm much more cognizant of chilling the f out. You know what I mean? Like yeah. now, like you know, okay, we're if we are out for three weeks, I'm taking, I'm going to take two months off because I need to get back to my body feeling better, or else I'm going to just be a mess. You know, I'm going to break down no matter how much I try to stay healthy, no matter how much I, you know, work out and do things that are that are good for my brain. You know, you know what you need to do. What's that? Go fly fishing. <laughs> that's that's what I do do. I, I absolutely I absolutely do that, man. Right, I'm not good at it, and I'll be the first to tell you that I'm a fraud. But I do, I do, I I I'm I'm up to my knees a lot, guy. Awesome, man. I know. I want to talk more about that. I want to talk one more thing about that high, real quick. Mm-hmm. And so, can you explain? Because there's not a lot of people that have been in your position in front of a band, in front of big audiences. Can you explain what it feels like to be in front of an audience like that? Um, God, there's, there's so much, it's, there's so much going through your mind with that because I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fear. Yeah. And there's a lot of like overcoming that because yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've talked to guys that are, on pretty high level and we've discussed that kind of behind closed doors and yeah it's sort of like one of those things where everybody kind of feels like they're a fraud you know no matter how how successful they are or how talented they've been told that they are or whatever that whatever the word is you feel in the adjective but whatever it is you still feel like they're going to discover you at any minute like that you're a fraud and, and that, <laughs> that you know yeah. it's, and it's all going to be exposed tonight so it's really, it, it's an interesting combination because when you get out there, there's this flood of energy. Like for me, I like to come out real strong with the band and, and I like to come out really strong and my energy is, is on a 10. Like really, even if we come out with something slow, my energy is very, very high. And yeah. then I don't really settle down until I know that the, I've got the crowd, that we're together. Yes. And so it's really it's really, there's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of like, you know, you're nervous, you're afraid, there's anxiety. And then there's, you know, there's excitement. And then there's that one moment where it's like, all right, now we're together. Now I feel like we're all together. Song two, song one, song three, song four, song five, sometimes all the way into maybe even an hour in, they finally give into it and they're, and they're with you. But whatever it is, I stay in there and I just try and make sure that we're, we're connected. And then mm-hmm. once we're connected, then it feels, it feels great. I feel like I'm at home. So yeah. when you have a long day at work and whatever you're doing and you, and it's been a, it's been a crap day and then you get home and you're like, ah, I feel better or whatever it is. That's kind of what that feeling is like. You, you, you can sort of relax and then you're in the moment and you're like, really, you're in a flow state that is like, mm-hmm. you, you could do no wrong. Mistakes don't ever happen when you're in that flow state. You know, you're just, yeah. You're just going. And a lot of times with us, it happens really early because we're, I'm lucky that the people that enjoy what we do, they're pretty committed from the get-go. And that's, that's, been, a really, that's been a really nice, nice thing to see happen over the years. Yeah. You've got a lot of responsibility going on as the, as the band leader, as the front man, you know, making sure the band's all together, making sure that they're going to hit the right notes plus the performance, plus getting the audience into it. Just, I mean, there's a lot going on just in your mind and physically, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. a lot of people don't realize that stuff that's goes on 
And probably not, you know, yeah. I, I don't think it, I think a lot of people that do it a lot too. And I think a lot of, a lot of really talented and really good performers and, and artists, whatever, I think they make it look really easy. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and so you think like, oh man, that is, that must be the greatest job ever. But I mean, the truth is, is that, you know, it is, it is tricky. It's it's pretty tricky. Yeah. What let, let's, let's talk about uh, fly fishing now mm-hmm. real quick. Um, you bought a house. You want to talk about how, how bad I am? <laughs> you bought a house uh, in Montana. Did I hear that correctly? That is correct. Yeah. I do spend a lot of time. Are you there a lot? Uh, I, I spend a lot of time there. I'm, I'm probably three months, maybe. Sick, man. That's awesome. So are you fishing like local rivers around your house? Yeah. I mean, uh, where I'm at, I'm on the Madison. So oh, you are? For, yeah. So for the guys, the guys out there that, that, that fly, um, I'm on the Madison. And I'm, I'm, I'm on like the Yellowstone Madison. I'm, I'm right. I'm, I'm like 52 miles from the West entrance of Yellowstone. Okay. And I'm probably 45 miles from Bozeman. And as the flow, I mean, as the crow flies, I'm like 15 miles from Big Sky and I'm on the, I'm in the Madison Valley and the Madison runs right in front of my house. Bitchin' dude. So how did yeah. you how did you end up going there? How, why did you end up buying a house there? I have a friend that has had a place in Ennis, Montana, for I think eighteen years, maybe more, and he's been going there for years and years and years and years. And he's told me for everyone. He's and he's also he's a real estate agent, and he's he's also I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of real estate. I like I like real estate a lot, and I, I've purchased homes and whatnot. So it's kind of a a hobby of mine is to buy places and he um he's been trying to get me to come just stay at his place not buy but just Mm -hmm. stay at his place and then when the pandemic hit i went out i finally had time to go and my girlfriend and i we we drove out in a in a in a sprinter van and just kind of camped along everywhere we could and and just sort of got out of the whole pandemic madness because she also works in she's a, a makeup artist and in film and television. So she works the same crazy hours I do just in a different business at the same level. She's probably more successful than I am. And, uh, she, and so we both were like going insane cause we're so used to like doing stuff, you know? <laughs> so we went out to Montana to go stay at his place and I pull in there and I'm like, Holy, I'm, this is it. Yeah. Like, this is it. Like this is, this is what I've been looking for. And, and I've been through Montana a bunch going through and playing and a really good friend of mine, actually an artist that I made a record with about five, six years ago. Um, she was a, she was working for somebody out in Montana and I, I text her. I, and I, as I was driving through Montana, Montana doing a gig going, why don't I own something in Montana? And she <laughs> said, you've got to check out this town called Ennis. I'm, I've been here in Ennis now for blah, 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 blah. And so I went and checked it out on this thing. And I was there for one day and I called a real estate agent and was looking at property the next day. And, and I bought, and it was, within, it's right on the Madison. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. I'm right. I'm right in front of, I'm right in front of Lake Ennis. Oh, okay. In, in this, in this lake. And yeah. And the Madison spills into it. So yeah. where I'm at numbered fishing posts are, I think I have one, two, three, four, five, I have probably at least 10 
spots that are like to die for um, <laughs> within, I don't know, 15 miles of my house. Yeah. I know. And that. it's for me, it's an argument like, wh- which direction am I going to go in? Yeah. Right. And I don't even have to get in a boat. I can go up to my knees and just, yeah. you're just in there, you're in an area that you're just, I mean, I don't even care if I catch anything. And yeah, I normally exactly. don't I have no idea what I'm doing. None, zero. <laughs> Never took a lesson. I've been dying to try to get some time to come up and, and take something from you. And my buddy Len did it with you and he was telling me about it. I'm like, oh, I, I got to get up there, man. I got to, I got to do this, man. So yeah, expect, it, expect me now. But, but yeah, so I, I get up and I, I do it and, it, and it, it's just, it's just the, um, the art of the meditation, my friend. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to, when you come up, we're going to, we're going to hike into some areas where it's just, it's just gorgeous and, and we'll fish up in that area. It'll be, it'll be amazing. Yeah. I, I love it, man. I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of it really. But again, you know, I, my stuff is all thrift store bought. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, I'm like, I need something cause I like to be active. You know, when I'm there, I, I love to run up in the hills and I like to run by the lake and I, and I like to hike and we hike the hell out of that place. I mean, it's, we're doing something every day. There's just so much activity every day. Just, it fits my, it fits my mindset perfectly. It's so important. You know, it's so important to have that uh, balance, you know, and that's the, that's what I've learned. Guy is balance. <laughs> Everything is balance. Dude, we're, we're, we're in our fifties. We are, we finally figured it out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I'm, I'm at the tip of it anyway. I don't know if I've, I've gotten much figured out. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's taken me a while too, man. I'm just, you know, I'm just enjoying it. I've kind of, uh, I'm kind of mellowed out on uh, working in the shop so much anymore. I'm just kind of doing behind the scenes stuff and, and guiding and teaching and, and uh, I'm enjoying that aspect of it for but sure. But you love it though, right? And, oh, that's, and that's really, I you worked it. so hard to get to that point And now yeah. you get to share all that information that you've learned from doing something that you love. Love it. Absolutely. Just love it. I mean, that's, that's what we're working towards. You know, that's, that's what we're working towards. You know, that's what I try to teach my kids, you know, is, is work really hard at something that you really love. Cause at some point you'll get to, you'll get to share that love, you know, you'll get to share that with people, you know? Yeah, for sure. So, um, we'll have to set that up and get you up, up here and, and go fishing, yeah, sure. go fishing with me. And there's, there's so much we can do. We can do trout. We can do, um, we can float the lower current for uh, smallmouth bass, um, which is a, super fun that's my favorite and nice. um, we, we have our own little boats you know you get your own little boat and you float down and cast to the shore for smallmouth and largemouth bass in the river which is that's insane yeah. it, it's so cool yeah there's nothing like that i mean there was really there's nothing like that we've got outfitters all over where i'm at there's there's a bunch of outfitters yeah and uh and it, it's it's bitching i mean it's 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 insane i mean yeah. it's insane you know I, i'm glad it's not as as popular as you know it probably could get, or it was going to get. Cause I know during pandemic, yeah. like Ron from was, was just barraged. I mean, it was crazy. It's finally mellowed out now. It has, it sure has. Well, Scotty Morris, thank you so much for being on my podcast. That was a good freaking uh, podcast, buddy. Thanks man. I, I, I hope I wasn't too, uh, 
too all over the place. My brain is oh, sort of so great. I'm, so so I'm perfect. making a, I'm making I'm mixing a record right now. So my brain is all <laughs> I'm on the other I'm on the other side right now. So I'm just like woo. Awesome man. Oh, I'm I'm actually heading to Ventura uh, right now after I get done with this. I'm I'm teaching a fly fishing in the surf or. We'll see what happens because the, the the waves and the the, yeah. the ocean's kind of jacked up right now. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, um, that's what I'm doing. So nice, what, what's uh, what's on the agenda for um, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy as far as uh, shows and that sort of thing? Right now we're on, we're on our down because we just got done touring uh-huh. and we are um, in that turn. Being that it's our 30 year anniversary, uh, our 30 year our 30 year. So I'm just right now, uh, I've just written 10, 10 tunes and we're going to get those all arranged and worked out and we're going to start releasing uh, 45s, two songs in pairs um, starting and they'll start coming out probably in October and we're going to release uh, our... I, I, for lack of better definition, we've re-recorded our most popular songs so the record labels don't have the You Me and the Bottle Mix 3 and the Go Daddy-O's and the Pinstripe Suits and all the songs yeah. that make all the money. So we've re-recorded those songs. So I'm going to do an LP that comes out in December. I'm mixing that right now. And um, and then just all that new music is going to be splintered out over from every three months for the next you know year. Excellent. Yeah, so just busy playing and just trying to stay, trying to stay um, well fed so that I can go and uh, and chill in Montana. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, I am I am so happy. I'm so proud of uh, your band. Um, you know, being from Ventura and the success that you've had. Um, I'm Thank proud. You, I'm proud to say that I know you and have known you for a long time. And um, I just wish you and the guys the best and continued success in the future, my friend. I, I appreciate that, man. Same to you, my brother. Yeah, man. All right. Well, fly fishing is next and let's do it, huh? Yep. All right, buddy. We'll take care. We'll talk to you soon. Got it, man. All right, bud. See you later. See you. Hey, guys. has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western a mule there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv brave anglers search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv